0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at cartereconomicforum.com.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio.
3: New Justice Amy Coney Barrett will immediately be embroiled in some of the nation's biggest legal battles. The court has already been deciding pre-election skirmishes over the rules for casting and counting ballots. Joining me is constitutional law professor Neil Kinkoff of the Georgia State University College of Law. Neil, most of these emergency petitions on election law issues are being decided by Chief Justice Roberts' vote. When Barrett is in the equation, will she then be the deciding vote?
2: She'll be the deciding vote in any case where Roberts makes the vote four to four. So in a case like the Wisconsin case from yesterday that was five to three, her vote wouldn't affect the outcome.
3: Speaking of the Wisconsin case, are you reading into Justice Kavanaugh's comments that he's trying to provide a roadmap that could help Trump win the election if there's a contested race?
2: Well, I guess I would put it this way. Two years ago, we saw Brett Kavanaugh screaming at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, in his opinion, we see him screaming Donald Trump's talking points into his concurrence. Really, the only difference between Brett Kavanaugh's opinion and Donald Trump's Twitter feed is that Kavanaugh doesn't use all caps.
3: Three of the justices worked on the Republican side on Bush v. Gore. When you're a litigator or a lawyer, you don't necessarily believe in what you're arguing for your client. In that context, does their being on that case signal anything?
2: So I don't think that being on that case was an example of just taking your client's position because that's what you're being paid to do. People who were involved in that case were very much committed to the cause they were arguing for. So this wasn't just sort of professional lawyering. So that I think you're quite right in general, it's a perilous thing to read into an advocate's position what that advocate might do on the bench. But I would say Bush versus Gore is a, a real exception to that, because the people who argued that case were very much committed to what they were arguing for. And so and I think it's it's, you know, in that respect, it's no accident that um, that in the Wisconsin opinion yesterday, Judge Justice Kavanaugh um, cited and discussed Bush versus Gore. Um, I believe that's the first time any Supreme Court justice has done that since Bush versus Gore was decided, right? It contained that famous passage where um, Justice Kennedy wrote that, that the, um, the opinion was good for that day and that train only. Mm-hmm. But I think Justice Kavanaugh is making it quite clear that, that he regards that as sort of normal, settled law and an appropriate precedent for how the court should act.
3: Justice Barrett was questioned on Roe v. Wade repeatedly during her confirmation hearings. She said that Roe v. Wade was not what she called a super precedent that could not be overturned. And she may be making a key decision on abortion in a matter of days. The court is considering at a private conference on Friday whether to hear Mississippi's defense of a law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. If the court takes that case, can we read anything into it?
2: Well, I think if they take that case, they're taking it to uphold the Mississippi law. Um, I think that's quite clear, and I think it's clear that the court is aiming to overrule Roe. I just I don't think there's any subtlety about it, and I don't think there's anything to be mystified about. That's exactly the agenda.
3: In in order to uphold Mississippi's law, would they have to overrule Roe?
2: No, no, they wouldn't in that case. And and that's, you know, they they could, but they wouldn't have to. And I think that's the preference of at least some of the justices Mm -hmm. in, in that group is to move a bit incrementally. I think that's certainly Justice Roberts's preference, um, and I think that's sort of the more credible way that that somebody who wants to reach that result would go about reaching it, instead of reaching out to overrule Roe, set up a few cases beforehand that that seriously undermine Roe, that then allows you, when you do the stare decisis analysis, one component of that is whether the precedent is something that's fixed in the law, that's relied upon, um, and that is consistent with other areas of the law? Or by contrast, is it something that sort of sticks out like a sore thumb? So I think the first agenda item for um, Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh, Roberts, is to make Roe really stick out like a sore thumb and then come back and overrule it.
3: The arguments on Obamacare come up right after the election. How's that likely to play out?
2: There are a couple of aspects to that case. One is whether or not, again, the individual mandate as revised recently to have no penalty associated with it, whether that's constitutional. Because the court ruled by a 5 to 4 vote that it was, her vote replacing the vote of Justice Ginsburg can flip that 5 to 4 in the other direction. Then the second question is, if that provision is unconstitutional, is it severable from the rest of the statute? And that's the kind of question on which I would have expected Chief Justice Roberts to have sided with the liberals to say it is severable, or even to have sided with the liberals and have said in the first instance, it's still not unconstitutional. So I think Justice Barrett's vote is going to be decisive on both of those questions. And the severability argument, frankly, is really weak. And so it may be that Justice Barrett and any number of other conservative justices will agree that the individual mandate is severable.
3: The Supreme Court has expedited a Trump administration appeal on the president's bid to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count. And they're going to hear that on November 30th. Is there any indication how that case might go?
2: Again, this is reading tea leaves. Um, I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned, given the way That at least four justices, right, the four conservative justices have pretty consistently upheld the, frankly, partisan Republican positions with respect to voting. Um, And fundamentally, that's what this census case is about, the apportionment of seats in the House of Representatives. It also has a lot to do with apportionment of federal funding. So it's a case that goes, goes beyond just that, but it has real political implications. And so adding Justice Barrett to that group means that the court may well be poised to vindicate the Trump administration's, frankly, preposterous position. For 230 years, it has been uniformly understood by Republicans, Democrats, pro-immigration, anti-immigration, everybody, that inhabitants means inhabitants. It doesn't mean citizens. And so that this is even a question right, is, is really extraordinary. And yes, having Justice Barrett on the court for that, I think, was a big part of the impetus to push to fill Justice Ginsburg's vacancy with someone that the right wing felt they could rely upon.
3: Also coming up is a clash between gay rights and religious rights. And the Supreme Court in recent years has been expanding religious rights, some even by seven to two votes. Does it seem as if that case is going to favor religious rights?
2: Yes, that that case is going to go to use religious rights to establish a right to discriminate against people um, because of their gender or sexual orientation. Yes, that's very much the direction in which it's going
3: let's just say that there is a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic President. Can Congress pass laws to protect gay rights?
2: If the Supreme Court holds that the free exercise of religion includes the right to discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation, right? So the employer's religious belief that an employee's sexual orientation is sinful or disordered, um, if that's protected free exercise, that forbids Congress from overriding it, because the right to free exercise is a fundamental First Amendment protected constitutional right, and Congress can't infringe on that by legislation it is contrary to how we've always understood free exercise in the past to say that it includes a right to discriminate. But this court certainly appears poised to say exactly that.
3: Those are the cases that have been talked about a lot. Are there other decisions coming up that Coney Barrett's vote may make a difference?
2: The other one that is immediately coming up is the the case involving the president's tax returns. And so, you know, she could end up casting a deciding vote in that case. And when you think about the way the Supreme Court resolved um, the cases, um, both the the one out of New York and the, the, the cases coming out of the congressional subpoenas, it was a very complicated and, frankly, kind of convoluted compromise between several factions on the Supreme Court, right? So they sort of spanned the gamut from the liberal approach of allowing Congress and um, Cyrus Vance, the Manhattan prosecutor, to subpoena and and gain access to the president's tax returns. Um, At the other end, you had Justices Thomas and Alito, who seemed to want to give the president blanket protection. Um, And then in the middle, you had Justice Roberts um, siding with the liberals, but in in a much more narrow way, holding that there might be circumstances under which the subpoenas um, could be upheld, right? but really leaving enforcement of that to sort of further judicial elaboration. Well, now it's time for that further judicial elaboration. And when you replace Ginsburg with Barrett, that could have a real important consequence for whether or not uh, those tax returns have to be, have to be turned over.
3: Now that Coney Barrett is on the court. There's more of a push by Democrats to pack the court. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joe Biden has said he's not a fan of that, but he's going to appoint a bipartisan presidential commission. What's your opinion about packing the court and whether it will, as some people say, ruin the Supreme Court?
2: So I think Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have packed not just the Supreme Court, but the federal courts generally, right? The district court um, and the courts of appeals. Um, And so I think it's important that they be unpacked. Um, The courts, as they stand now, do not have legitimacy or credibility. And it may be that adding seats doesn't do anything to improve their credibility, but it certainly improves their legitimacy in terms of their balance, in terms of undoing the manipulation that's been going on over the last years, many years, even before Donald Trump came into office, um, Mitch McConnell was manipulating to make sure vacancies didn't get filled so they could be filled during the Trump administration, most famously with Merrick Garland, but not only. Um, And so I think responding to that is absolutely vital to the court, right, to just lay down and accept it. Roberts were still really the swing vote, I think he would hold his hand on things like overruling Roe. I think that would be his strong inclination, especially given the threat of court packing. But with a six to three majority, you know, even if you lose John Roberts, now it's a five to four majority, um, Roe is gone, right? And it may make political sense for Joe Biden to wait for that to happen before coming forward with any kind of court reform package.
3: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Neil. That's Professor Neil Kinkoff of the Georgia State University
0: College of Law. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Justice Amy Coney Barrett made her Supreme Court debut less than a week after being sworn in as the newest member of the court. Barrett, a graduate of Notre Dame Law School, is the only current justice who did not attend law school at Harvard or Yale. About half of Supreme Court clerks in recent years also attended those law schools. So how did Barrett pick her law clerks? Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. So, Kimberly, Barrett looked beyond Harvard and Yale for her law clerks. Well, that's what we've been
5: seeing um, with her on the 7th Circuit, and that is how she's picked her clerks uh, for her first clerk class on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, she announced the other day that uh, four clerks who will join her in chambers, and none of, none of them are from
3: Harvard and Yale, something that has definitely set her apart. Now Barrett hired two men and two women. Two were from the University of Chicago Law School, one from George Washington Law School, and one from Northwestern Law School. So none from her own alma mater. Does each justice have four clerks? Each
5: active justice has four clerks, and then uh, the retired justices can have one, and those numbers can sometimes Switch around depending on you know the membership of the court itself, uh, but typically it's just four clerks for the nine justices sitting on the bench.
3: And have some of the clerks that she chose work for other justices? So she she did choose um, three clerks who had previously clerked for
5: other justices, and then she brought one of her clerks from the Seventh Circuit along with her. Um, to the Supreme Court. And that's typical. That's typically what we see from the justices who are just starting out on the bench.
3: Now, I thought that Supreme Court clerkships lasted a year. Are some people clerking for the court for more than a year? Well,
5: you know, we we do occasionally see people who have clerked for more than one justice. That can happen in two ways. Um, One, they either get selected to clerk and then that justice retires. And so technically they're working for the retired justice and one of the active justices. Um, for example, like Justice Kennedy um, might have sent some of his clerks over to Justice uh, Gorsuch. Um, but then we also see that new justices do tend to hire uh, clerks who have some previous experience on the Supreme Court, probably, um, we're just guessing, but to help them kind of learn the ropes a little bit of how, you know, the ins and outs of the Supreme Court process.
3: You know, I noticed that her clerks, clerk previously for justices appointed by Republican presidents. When they're choosing clerks, are they thinking about their political bent? Well, Justice Scalia was really the
5: last justice to hire, quote-unquote, counter-clerks. That is somebody who is ideologically um, opposite of him. But he stopped that practice um, many, many years ago before he uh, passed away. And most of the justices tend to hire clerks Who have clerked for other justices or other judges on lower courts, um, who apply the law in a similar way as them. So it's not unusual that her clerks all came from Republican appointed justices. What has happened to Justice
3: Ginsburg's clerks? So all five
5: of Justice Ginsburg's clerks, um, have been distributed among the Democratic appointed, uh, justices. And I did say five. Justice Ginsburg had agreed to take on, uh, Justice Stevens clerk that uh, he, he had hired before he passed away. Um, and so that clerk is once again redistributed to yet another justice.
3: Are there more women clerks than there used to be? Well, you know, Justice Barrett, uh,
5: her experience of hiring more diverse clerks, academically diverse clerks, um, her first term out is actually very similar to Justice Kavanaugh, who hired the first all-female uh, clerk clerk. Uh, for his chambers in his first term as well. And so since then, we have seen the number of women rising, largely due to uh, Justice Kavanaugh's efforts. But Justice Ginsburg was also one of the justices who hired a large number of female clerks. And so we'll have to see if Justice Amy Coney Barrett continues that same direction, or if we actually see the numbers fall a little bit um, under her tenure on the court.
3: And so Justice Barrett did not take part in some of the emergency election matters that came before the court even after she was sworn in. But she did take part in the oral arguments. So what was the case about?
5: Well, these cases, the two cases that the justices heard were relatively lower profile. Um, They were about uh, Freedom of Information Act cases um, and another about retirement benefits for railroad employees. Um, But, of course, in the coming weeks, she's going to hear some real blockbusters starting on Wednesday uh, with a dispute between religious freedom and LGBT rights, and then next week a case uh, regarding the constitutionality of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And of course, we could still see the election
3: come to the Supreme Court um, as you know these challenges work through the system. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Kimberly. That's Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. A federal judge rejected a bid by Republican activists to invalidate 127,000 votes that were cast using drive through voting in the most populous county in Texas. Federal Judge Andrew Hannon said, For lack of a nicer way of saying it, I ain't buying it. Joining me is Laurel Calkins, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. There seemed to have been a lot of court action about the election in Texas. What's been happening?
6: Oh, gosh. I think I've got PTSD from all the election challenges that have been filed against every single slice and dice of the changes that uh, Harris County in particular, which is home to Houston, um, every change the election officials have made to try to make it easier for people to vote during a pandemic, and they have been fought tooth and toenail every step of the way. It's been really hard to keep up with uh, who's fighting what. And like the challenge that we just heard a conclusion on, the same group of, um, uh, let's call them radical Republicans, had brought the exact same challenge in state court. Um, They were shot down Sunday by the state Supreme Court, but they had another shot at it today in front of a federal judge who also shot them down. And I'm talking about the drive-through voting challenge which was one of the more unique options that uh, Harris County came up with to try to put more voters into a voting booth.
3: Tell us about the drive-through because it seems as if they're checking and it's a lot like going to vote at the polls.
6: It's exactly like going to vote at the polls except you never get out of your car, which for Houston is like the best possible solution because everybody in Houston is like born with car keys in their hands. (laughs) It's a town that lives and dies by the car. So what happens is... In 10 different locations around the city, the county has set up these giant tents. Like you see when you go to parties or think of the circus, but it has drive-through lanes built through the center of it. And you, when the election clerk that's in that lane signals you as the voter, you drive forward, and they make you turn off your cell phone. You have to follow all the regular procedures. You show your ID. You sign a voter's register just as if you had walked into the polls. They put a sanitized electronic uh, tablet in your hands. You cast your vote and you hand it back and it's plugged into the system and your vote counts and away you go, or at least that's theoretically how it was supposed to happen.
3: This was approved by the Secretary of State and it's been in process for quite a while since the summer, right?
6: Well, we actually had a test drive of the system in the uh, runoff election that was held in Texas in July and Harris County rolled out one drive-through location just to see if the concept would work. And it worked outstandingly. Everybody loved it, and there were no problems, and there were no court challenges. And the Texas Secretary of State, who is the highest-ranking election official in Texas, said, hey, looks fine to me. So Harris County said, great, we'll double down, we'll put 10 locations spread out all around the county, and make it easy for everybody. And uh, things were going swimmingly until the voting was well underway when this group of Republicans, uh, well, you could call them radicals, you can call them malcontents, you can call them patriots, whatever thing you want to say, they challenged that the county elections clerk who had come up with drive-through voting didn't technically have the authority to do so. Their argument was that only the Texas legislature can create new methods of voting and so that's, the fight was on from that point as to whether the uh, county clerk had overstepped his bounds in creating new methods of voting. And today, the judge in federal court in Houston essentially said, I think it's okay. At least it's okay for early voting. He, on a technicality, he threw out the lawsuit. He said the Republicans who complained don't have an actual injury to their right to vote, so they don't even have the right to bring this complaint. And so he wouldn't even consider the rest of the arguments legally, except he said, now I know you're going to go run over to the Fifth Circuit and appeal my decision, so let me give you the rest of my thinking. And he said, he sort of agreed with the people that looked at the Texas election code and said, well, it says on election day, you're required to cast your vote in a building or in a structure. And he said, the tents might not qualify under that rule. So he said on election day, that might not be a legal place to cast your vote, but it certainly has been a legal place under the early voting rules. And so the 127,000 votes that have been cast so far in early voting are going to count. They're legally counting unless an appellate court comes in with a different decision.
3: Why were Republicans going after these votes in Harris County? Could there have been Republican That's votes good- there
6: too? Yes. In fact, they probably would have thrown out some Republican votes because there were quite a few elderly individuals who were voting at these drive through locations as a way to, number one, uh, easily get around without mobility issues. But number two, also avoid going into a crowded polling location and exposing themselves to potentially catching the coronavirus. So there were – and older voters tend to vote uh, Republican in Texas. So there would have been Republican votes that that were caught up in this. But the – The main thing is Harris County is sort of ground zero for the Democratic's effort to flip the state of Texas from its traditional uh, Republican stronghold to uh, a Democratic stronghold. Um, The state has been trending Democratic in the last uh, several presidential elections and midterm congressional elections, and all of its largest cities are now routinely voting Democratic with Harris County, which is, again, the home of Houston, leading the pack with the largest number of votes. So if 127,000 early voters uh, in drive through which was about 10 percent of nearly a million and a half votes that cast in Harris County alone in early voting, if they could get those votes thrown out, um, then this group of Republicans just felt they were that much closer to not losing to Democrats in Harris County. And the stakes are incredibly high because Texas is a winner-take-all state for electoral college votes. It has 38 states. And if Trump doesn't win those 38 states, it becomes very difficult for the math to come together for him to win the presidency. Um, Beyond the presidency, it's also – this this election has the ability to change the makeup of the Texas congressional delegation, which right now is uh, strongly Republican. But it could lose some of that and become more and more uh, tilted towards the Democrats. And even more importantly – Um, the Democrats could gain control of the Texas state uh, legislature, which will determine the next set of redistricting maps. We will draw redistricting maps for the new legislative districts all over the country based on the 2020 census, and whoever controls the House in Texas will draw those maps. So it's a lot at stake, and that's why they were fighting so hard.
3: The Texas Supreme Court also rejected this challenge. What was their reasoning?
6: Well, it's funny. They gave no reason. Interestingly enough, the Texas Supreme Court is 100 percent Republican. And this challenge, this exact challenge, was presented to them three different times by essentially an overlapping group of people, but at one point also included uh, the Texas Democratic Party. And they presented this challenge, and each time the Texas Supreme Court just rejected it without any explanation. In one of the challenges, one of the justices wrote a dissenting opinion where he said he would have listened to the Republican objectors and and he would have given some credence to what they had to say. But he was the only one, and he was an outlier. So we don't actually have the benefit of the the whole Supreme Court's ruling because uh, they never gave us their thinking on it.
3: That's Laurel Calkins, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every week, 9 at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.